everyone. Leo and I are very excited to share our conversation with Dr. David Lay with you. But first, I wanted to take a minute to just give you some background on who he is and the work he does for those of you who may not yet be familiar. Dr. David Lay is a world-renowned clinical psychologist known for bringing scientifically accurate and clinically sound information to discussions about modern sexuality. He serves on the board of the Sexual Health Alliance as an expert advisor and is an internationally recognized expert on issues related to sexuality, pornography, and mental health. He has appeared on television with Anderson Cooper, Katie Couric, and Dr. Fell. He's also been on Dan Savage's podcast, so we really appreciated Dr. Lay making time to also appear on the Psychodrama podcast after all of those various huge media outlets. Dr. Lay has published extensively in both the academic and pop realms of literature on sex-related topics. He has made so many contributions that this introduction could really be a whole episode in and of itself. But rather than continuing to go on about that, I will link to his website and to his books in our show notes, and we will go right to our conversation so you can hear Dr. Lay talk about his important, fascinating work. As always, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Psychodrama Podcast. This is your co-host, Katie Gordon. And this is your co-host, Leo Boadilla, which uh, rhymes with Casadilla. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing today, Leo? I'm doing great, Katie. I'm just uh, trying to put the existential dread away from seeing Chernobyl trending on Twitter um, and just kind of get back into a little bit of uh, podcasting. And I'm very excited about today because we have a fantastic guest. We have Dr. David Lay. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome. Thank you so much. And Leo, you're not the only one with that kind of existential dread, doom scrolling and God, how did we get here? Yeah, it was, I was telling Katie right before you jumped on that it was, it seemed like a chronicle of an invasion foretold and you were like, yeah, you know, seriously, we cannot get ended and here we are, took me back to this, this is not the kind of 80s revival that I kind of tend to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember being in high school when the, you know, when the Berlin Wall fell. Yeah. And watching that and just thinking, my God, this is, this is history right here. Right. And here we are again. Yeah. No. Yeah, I, same thing. I was I was a bit younger, but I definitely remember that, and definitely remember being very worried about Chernobyl. I mean, I, I was like, I don't need to watch this show because I lived through that and the existential crisis of that. And so now it's more like, well, um, the more you know, as the saying goes, you know, the more the more things change, the less they change, I guess. Yeah. But <laughs> but on a happier note, uh, <laughs> let's talk, let's talk about sex. <laughs> Let's talk about I don't know, sex. was that 80s or that's not, it was that 90s? Yeah, that, yeah, that, that was the song. Sex song. Who sang that? Let's talk about sex. <laughs> salt, it was the salt and pepper, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I don't know if that was 80s or 90s, but let's do that. That sounds more fun. You know, and I think since the beginning of this podcast, our first episodes came out at the beginning of the pandemic. So we've always had a that's backdrop right. of these very stressful things and then taken mm-hmm. time to kind of focus in on some psychological topics. And, and so one thing we just wanted to start talking about is how you got into this area of research and clinical work. So, you know, I have a kind of an interesting path and, and somewhat, I guess, unique. I um, 
uh, as a psychologist, I originally worked um, in forensic settings and correctional settings, um, uh, clinical settings with sex offenders, and um, spent uh, a number of years treating uh, sex offense issues um, in a in a couple of three different states, and uh, and then was also doing forensic um, kind of work, uh, competency to stand trial, um, some custody eval sort of stuff, and and I moved away from that. I um, uh, I've always been more of a, a big picture kind of psychologist. And so I started working, I worked with managed care for a little while and then, um, gosh, in 2004, so like 18 years ago now, I guess I, uh, uh, stepped in as executive director of a, what was it, what was at the time a very small nonprofit. Um, in Albuquerque. Mm. And uh, I stepped in just, you know, like as executive director for an interim kind of position um, <laughs> while we were looking for another director. I, I was connected to the agency and it was just helping out. At the time, we had about six employees. And the uh, the interesting thing was, it was a time of huge growth in behavioral health. And mm-hmm. um I remember saying to the CEO of our parent company, I said, you know, actually, there's a lot of room here. There's a lot of need. Could I could I play for a little while and let's just see what we can do. Um, and here I am 18 years later. Um, the I have about 100 still employees. Interim. Yeah, still interim, still <laughs> interim. Um, I have about 100 employees. We have like five locations. We treat about 3000 patients a year. Um, and our budget is now, I want to say about eight or nine times the size that it was uh, back then. And um, uh, wow. it, it, we've grown a lot, but, but, in, you know, it, as a psychologist, I mean, I got, maybe, maybe you guys did, I didn't, I got no training on human resources issues, budget oh God, no. issues, administrative issues, policy issues, regulatory right. issues. And all of those things are, you know, contracting, um, all of those things are a huge part of my my job, but also, frankly, kind of challenging, frustrating, and depressing. So um, yep. back in back in something like 2007 or eight or so, I was uh, frankly, I was clinically depressed from dealing mm-hmm. with those issues mm-hmm. and. Um, my clinical work, I had shifted away from working with sex offenders and I had gravitated, I still see patients and, and I had gravitated towards seeing folks in alternative sexuality kind of communities, kinky, mm-hmm. not monogamous, um, uh, poly, whatever, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and the reason I, I did that was because I, I started getting these referrals from, uh, of those issues from my colleagues who, didn't feel competent treating those issues. And so they sent them to me, right? Mm-hmm. Last name Lay, you know, sex doctor. Really. Um, perfect match. That's right. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we could not blend it better. <laughs> but they, what I found was that even though these, these issues, you know, were clearly not sex offending, these were consensual behaviors, um, because psychologists and therapists get so little training on sexuality. Um, that many therapists just didn't feel competent to work with those issues. So they sent them to me. And what those folks told me was that they got a lot of shame and judgment um, from therapists. And so they kept their sexuality secret. So I was working with those folks 
and remember I'm depressed and I'm looking for kind of something else to do that, you know, bureaucracy wouldn't kill me. Right. And, uh, and I ran into these two couples that, um, lived what they called the hot wife or cuckold lifestyle. And this is a, a sexual lifestyle where the, the husband typically is monogamous and the, and the wife is <laughs> enthusiastically non-monogamous with the husband's, you know, right, consent right. and, and, and strong support. Mm-hmm. And my initial clinical reaction was that can't be healthy. But I had to, I, I, interestingly and luckily, I think that these two couples were, you know, they were remarkably successful. They had incredible high profile careers. You know, one mm-hmm, of the wife was mm-hmm. VP of a nationwide kind of very significant company. Another right. wife was a college professor. Um, and, you know, they had, they had decades long marriages, successful kids, incredible communication skills. By any psychological measure that we would throw out there, these people were really healthy. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trained to be, you know, self-scrutinizing. And I, I questioned myself and I said, when these people are so clearly healthy, why would I assume? And I realized that I had allowed you know, social and moral biases around female sexuality, monogamy, promiscuity. Mm to intrude into my clinical thinking because I had not been trained to keep that stuff out or to Mm -hmm. recognize the difference. And Mm -hmm. I looked at the literature. There was at the time, there was nothing published about it. And, and I said, well, remember I'm looking for a project. I've always wanted to write a book. So I dove in and I, and I started interviewing these people and I started reading everything I could about, you know, the origins of monogamy, about the biology of female sexuality, about male um, evolutionary response to cuckolding and, and such. And, uh, and at the end of it, I had a book and because nothing was published about it, when I put out a proposal, I got a contract in just a couple of three weeks and mm-hmm. And it launched me into this really interesting kind of new domain where basically the book took the argument of saying, you know, hey, look, there's an assumption that this is unhealthy and there are aspects where it can be unhealthy when people are unhealthy. But we need to be very cautious about judgment. And, um, and, and, And it launched me into this really fascinating kind of now stance and and career where i am kind of a gadfly out there calling out the degree to which religious and moral biases have around sexuality have intruded into our clinical thinking interestingly that first book uh, insatiable wives when women who stray and the men who love them was just released as an audio book and i had gone to my publishers several times saying you know people are asking for this this book on audio can we do that? And the publishers were like, eh, we don't think there's a market. And <laughs> then these uh, these friends of mine who um, narrate erotic fiction, they came to me and said, uh, we, yeah, we help you do that makes this. sense. Yeah. And we put it out and it's doing amazingly. It's probably sold more copies in two months than it sold in the past probably three or four years. Wow. I bet. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. That's such an important point about the clinical training, how it can miss so much of this important aspect of sexuality. And I really liked your Psychology Today post about partners meeting each other's sexual 
ideals. And you mentioned this Balzarini study. And I'm wondering if you could explain the role that unmet sexual ideals play in sexual dissatisfaction. Yeah. So first, let me just say, you know, Rhonda Balzarini is um, she is one of the sharpest kind of uh, psychologist researchers out there right now. I'm really impressed with her work. She she did this really fascinating study um, where they looked at unmet sexual ideals. And so they examined couples and and it was not just hetero couples but it was uh queer couples and and even non-monogamous folks etc not just weird you know white anglo-saxon kind of folks or college students but it was a big age range and and ethnicities and, and races and stuff great great study and and they looked at when you're in a relationship with somebody who doesn't meet your sexual ideals and they measured that by things like my partner likes oral sex as much as I do, for instance. And the thing is that we don't prepare people to negotiate relationships that match sexually. And, you know, I, I, I mean, Dan Savage, you know, really strongly encourages that couples should have sex before they get married to figure out if they're compatible. Right. But it's also not, you know, a mismatched libido, for instance, and desire discrepancy is a absolutely huge issue in couples work and it can be really challenging when we're in a relationship and we love our partner but their body has changed perhaps um, or right, their right. ego has changed or our interest mm-hmm. in sex has evolved and and what what Belzerini's study found first was that and it was multiple kind of nested studies um, in a really sophisticated kind of thoughtful way. First, they they demonstrated that when we're in a relationship with somebody who doesn't meet our sexual ideals, it really does decrease relationship satisfaction. It really it does make it hard for us. And that's an important message first, just because we are so often told, well, you know, look, sex Sexual compatibility really shouldn't matter. I mean, you, you know, your partner's a good partner. They 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 listen to you. They take good care of you. They they're good right. parents. But sex and sexual compatibility and 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 satisfaction really is important. And 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 the study demonstrated that. But then it went on and found that when your partner is high in what they called sexual communion, and sexual communion is is maybe best understood as something like sexual empathy where I I know that I don't like to perform oral sex as much as my partner would like to receive it. And I wish I did. And I'm compassionate with my partner about this mismatch. And, you know, maybe I say things to my partner like, gosh, you know, I, I know you really like oral sex and I wish I like to give it as much as you like. And, you know, and maybe we make it a birthday present or something. And, and, and I stretch myself a little bit. When my partner is high in sexual communion, the fascinating thing is that it mitigates the negative impact of the unmet sexual ideals. That when my mm-hmm, partner mm-hmm. is compassionate with my sexual need, it takes away the sting. And, and it, it takes away me being dissatisfied in the relationship because now I know my partner accepts and cares about that part of myself. In, in, in a side note, there's, there's really strong research 
finding that when a bisexual person is in a relationship with a heterosexual person who doesn't accept the bisexual partner's sexuality, that the bisexual partner is at greatly increased risk of anxiety disorders, self-harm, depression, and thoughts of suicide. So being in a relationship with somebody who doesn't accept your sexual self is challenging to our health, and we need to recognize that. What was really neat, though, in this study um, uh, with Balzarini was that my partner having high sexual communion took away the sting for me, but didn't necessarily improve my partner's relationship satisfaction. But if I was also high in sexual communion, then it took away, then it, so it it has to be a give and take. It has to be Mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. both sides thing which um i just i just love and i and i in the in the article i wrote about it i i referenced the the o henry story uh gift of the magi where you know the the wife um sells her beautiful hair to buy a a a, a fob for her husband's favorite pocket watch and he sells his pocket watch to buy a comb for her beautiful hair there has to be this each of us have to have to connect um, and reach out to the other one. And then the last thing in the study, in the, the series of, of studies that Balzarini did, um, they showed that when we help a partner remember or acknowledge that our other partner has high sexual communion. So in other words, we remind them of times when their partner showed sexual empathy and compassion for them. It increases relationship satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it is just I, I I love it um, because it is such a thoughtful and clinically useful um, strategy to help us identify, acknowledge, normalize um, sexual conflicts um, and then develop a path forward by helping couples to practice sexual empathy and communion and remind each other of it. Um, I, I I think it's cool and it's neat that this research is happening. I mean, just over the past 10 or 15 years, um, probably less than that, research around sexual issues has exploded. Um, you know, when I was in grad school, the only research on sex that was really happening was around HIV and pregnancy prevention. That was all that could get funded. But now there is all of this remarkable research that is happening that is exploring and unpacking um, a lot of, uh, you know, sexual issues and challenging a lot of the ignorance and bias in in our field. Are you guys familiar with Christian Joyal's research up in Canada? I talked about Yeah, that. the Canadian, yeah, Canadian researcher. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah Joyal is, he's in Quebec and, and he's done this just remarkable research looking at a normal, normal population, normative population that is not seeking therapy. And Although finding, he says, he also says, well, this is, this is, this is French, this is French this Canadian, is so you take over the grain of salt, that's what he said at Quebecois to everybody, I, I agree, but, but he found that 50% of the population express interest in one or other uh, paraphilic behaviors, and 30% of them have engaged in those behaviors. So the fascinating thing about that is that diagnosing sexual disorders like paraphilias in the DSM was the only freaking sex training I got when I was getting my PhD. That was the only training on sexuality that I was given, how to diagnose pathological sexuality. And 
we were diagnosing it because we thought paraphilic interests were rare and usually unhealthy. And it turns out not so much at all. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, you, you give like you have. Yeah, that was thank you for that. That was that, that was a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot of stuff to break it, breaking there. So sorry. No, no, that's great. That's exactly, I mean, I that's get exactly excited talking about this stuff, especially with fellow psychologists, because I just think our field is changing so much. And so, what I'm curious is, how, what do you make of? Um, because I, when I can, I, when I became interested in this area, I was an undergrad, and I was really interested in both sex and violence, and I was like kind of just the both interested, and that's kind of how I ended up eventually kind of marrying those in my professional life being doing sexual violence assessments uh and so that's kind of but but i really kind of thought about like kind of the sexology so to me the exposure that i had was through the kinsey studies i found out you know like kinsey started doing this stuff and he kind of found this stuff way back then back when and then he faced the same backlash and you know a lot of critiques some valid regarding the samples that he used but still that definitely showing that there was a, a much wider array of sexual interests and activities that, that the typical american engaged in and then it seemed like that, you know, it, it kind of disappears and we forget about it. And there has to be kind of one sexual revolution. So all of a sudden, right. you know, Stonewall may occur and then it's like, oh, all right. And then, and then it just disappears again, maybe because I don't know, AIDS crisis. that will be an interesting sociological paper. But what do you make of this kind of resurgence currently in this so, interesting non-monogamy, et cetera? Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting. So my my mentor um, in grad school, when I started, you know, going down this path and and i was a few years ago i was um certified um as a sex therapist and a, a supervisor of sex therapy by mm-hmm. asect which is the american association of sexuality educators counselors and therapists who certify sex therapy in the united states mm-hmm. and based on my work at that point they they grandfathered me um uh, in for certification and the ASECT over the past couple of years has has experienced an incredible surge in people pursuing now certification in sex therapy because therapists around the world, around the country are experiencing this, that, that people are coming in now wanting to talk about sexuality and the therapists are going, well, I don't know how to do this. Not monogamy, what? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But my mentor, when I started pursuing this stuff, he said, you know, David, it's really interesting. He said, you know, there used to be lots of Masters and Johnson trained sex therapists around. Where right. Yeah, your Masters and Johnson. Yeah. And we and and I I started talking to therapists around the country um, as I did trainings uh, around these issues. Why? What happened? And um, there are a few things that I few trends that I think can contribute to this. First. Um, from the 1960s and 70s, which were very sexually liberal, progressive times, to the 1980s, we had very significant political shift. We went from, you know, uh, extremely Democrat liberal to, you know, Reagan politics. We also experienced the AIDS crisis, and all of a sudden, you know, sexuality and sexual exploration and non-monogamous sex was 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 potentially life-threatening, and so we became much more sexually conservative. The other thing that I think is interesting also, though, is that the 1980s was when managed care was really introduced in healthcare, hmm. and ma- most managed care plans do not consider treatment of sexual dysfunction covered mm. benefits. Mm. That billing for sexual dysfunction, billing for sex therapy is not a reimbursable code. And mm. so therapists stopped doing it because they couldn't get paid unless it was self-pay. Interesting. And then now, but you know, since since 2000, since the early 2000s, the rise of the internet 
has mm-hmm. has led to this, you know, sexual explosion in diversity. And yeah. two of the things that I I point at are one, you know, the the incredible and surprising popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people have questions and concerns about the book. Appropriately, mm-hmm. I agree. But the book has sold, you know, 100 million copies or more. And showed that just like with jo- the Joyelle study that we we're talking about, that there are many, many, many women out there who are very healthy and have interest in, you know, bondage and discipline, sadomasochistic kind of sex. We didn't know that. And only mm. as the book became so popular did were women now able to express and, and be accepted now being interested in that. The second thing I look at and point at is uh, the acceptance of marriage equality, that in 2010, uh, a majority of the United States believed that gay marriage was wrong. And in 2015, mm-hmm. a majority of our country believed that gay marriage was right. And uh, in, obviously, in 2015, Supreme Court you know, endorsed marriage equality. That is on record as the largest social shift in values in recorded history in the shortest period of time, just in five years. And what changed in that period, same as with Fifty Shades of Grey, is that gay people started coming out publicly and we started learning that there were lots of gay folk out there that we didn't know and that we were judging based on ignorance and bias and stigma, just like me when I was judging those couples. And just like the American Psychiatric Association when homosexuality was a disorder and then was taken out in 73 because prominent gay men in the APA came out to their peers. Um, I think what's fascinating right now is that the mental health industry and society in general is being faced with evidence of sexual diversity that we can't deny any longer. Right. It's incredible. And I'm not a member of the APA for complicated reasons, but um, <laughs> mostly because I, I was very concerned about the the waterboarding issues. Yeah. And, Same. and Absolutely. yeah, I. I almost I almost accepted a position with the CIA back in 2001, and if I had, I would have been one of the waterboarding psychologists. And I'm really glad I didn't. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that the APA would have had my back in that situation. But but um, to their credit, um, and the APA has historically been also a very sexually conservative group. But there's now a special interest group um, in the APA around consensual non-monogamy um, and around kink that they are now accepting. These are real issues we need to think about, study, and talk about. And, you know, the the assumptions that people that are interested in kink are psychologically unhealthy or have abuse histories, mm-hmm, turns out not mm-hmm. so much. Right. Um, you know, people that have more sex live longer and have happier lives. If we as psychologists are committed to helping our patients live long, happy lives, we have to talk about sex. Definitely. Yeah. As Leo knows, part of the reason I wanted to have you as a guest on on our podcast is because I I work in a women's health clinic and so much of the time, like you're saying, there people come in with certain beliefs that they kind of just have to settle with the way that their sexual life has changed from when they first got together with their partner and over time or when you have kids or something changes and that's just it and there's nothing to do about it. So one of the things that we focus on in therapy are very specific communication techniques and 
I think what you're saying is huge about the internet because I do think that that helps break that initial shame, that idea that like I'm the only one who is feeling this way and I'm going to tell my partner exactly, and they're going to be yeah. completely put off. So I'm wondering what are the major tips or components of communication that partners can use to have this kind of negotiation or sexual communion enhanced in their relationships? So so I'll point you to uh, another psychologist um, and, a, and a dear friend, Peggy Kleinplatz. And Peggy is a, a Canadian psychologist. She has a lovely book, uh, a couple of books, but um, a recent one called Magnificent Sex, Lessons from, mm -hmm. lessons from uh, uh, I forget what the rest of the title is, Amazing Lovers or something like that. And, we look it up. Um, and, and Peggy's research has looked at people's optimal sexual experiences. And, 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 and it's interesting language because, I mean, if you ask people, you know, what is your optimal sexual experience? It forces us to think about what are the things that we really like and want in sex? And then, you know, Peggy and her team did research and, and, and uh, did an evidence-based study supporting intervention strategies around this. And what they, what they argue is that there are basically kind of five components for a couple to communicate with each other um, and address these issues, Katie. And so first, you have to be willing to examine yourself and to say what your sexual needs are. That in and, in and of itself is a huge hump because people have, ha, I said hump. Um, people have, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. No, we, we welcome puns here. Okay. Thank <laughs> well, yeah, no, double entendre. Welcome it all. Highest form of humor. That's right. Um, the, 90% of people never share their sexual fantasies with their primary partner because they're afraid of judgment and shame that, you know, your, your sexual fantasy is going to be perceived as disturbed. Um, uh, Justin Laymiller is a lovely book. Tell me what you want. Um, uh, Brett Carr is a great book. He's been sleeping in your head. Um, analyzing sex fantasies and what we find is that you know that that sex fantasy is a really rich area that we don't talk much about um and people keep secret um so first you have to be willing to accept your sexual interest and then say them to your partner secondly your partner has to be able to hear that and that's a hard thing you know, um, can we get past kind of the fear of, you know, your partner sharing a sex fantasy, maybe of sex with other people, sex with not right. you. Um, and, you know, does your partner experience the fear that, oh, my God, if you're saying this, then you didn't like the sex we've been having or or I'm not good at sex. OK, so 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 that. That has to be something your partner can hear and, and you have to work through that and suspend some judgment. Also, create a safe place that I can share a sex fantasy without the assumption that that's a fantasy I have to do. Um, that, you know, Christian Joyal, again, he did some some interesting follow up research published just 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 this year looking at concordance rates and found that um, uh, the concordance rate between having a fantasy and actually engaging in the behavior is not one-to-one. -one. 
and that interestingly, particularly for you, Leo, that people that have fantasies of criminal sexual behavior are far right. less likely to enact them. That's good news. Yeah. People can have fantasies of, it, right? yeah. Yeah. People can uh, have fantasies yeah. of yeah. non-consensual, unhealthy behavior. Mm-hmm. So so just because my partner shares they has have this fantasy doesn't mean we have to make it happen. Okay. <sighs> Issue number three is that the couple then has to be willing to try this, has to be willing to, to try to enact it. And then issue number four is you have to be embodied during it because um, what Peggy finds is that so many people dissociate during sex that, you know, they, they're afraid around sex issues of anxiety, particularly um you know, fear of rejection and judgment and everything else that we have to teach people how to be present during sex. Right. That those are the steps, Katie, I think that, that couples can learn, you know, expressing, expressing themselves, accepting themselves, accepting their partner, listening, being willing to meet in the middle and negotiate and then being willing to be there during it. I I appreciate you pointing each of each of those out because to me it is it's just really sad to think of people feeling like they just have to settle and accept the way that their sexual dissatisfaction is and that's just part of life when really there are these people who have done wonderful work saying no here are some steps where you can improve your relationship satisfaction you can improve this aspect of your well-being. And so I appreciate that. I don't think there's enough information out there, although the internet has helped for people to access this. I I, I think in terms of early sex education and, and stuff like that, um, which obviously varies quite a bit by state. And I'm in North Dakota. And so some have had um, very limited sex education about communication. And and so it's really helpful to hear those steps. So thank you for reviewing those. I'll let Leo ask his question now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Oh, no, you didn't do anything wrong. I'm glad yeah. we're both excited to ask David questions. I know, because, oh, it's like, <laughs> because we're both going to have like personal interest uh, interest in it. So it's very, very cool. And I, I'm always curious. You mentioned David Savage before. Um, and uh, so it, a lot of what you were mentioning he kind of has succinctly put into like the, the good game and giving kind of mm-hmm. bon mot basically, but also the deal breaker. And so as you were talking about uh, the Bazzarini paper, there's a, there's an, a quote actually says, when coping with uns- unmet sexual ideals, couples may need to negotiate and at times sacrifice their sexual preferences to satisfy both partners. And so you have written pretty extensively about non-monogamy, co-calding, and I mean, this is kind of what he would actually, he would go like a varsity level Kind of mm-hmm. sexual activity. This is not just like, you know, he, he blindfold me and maybe spank me a couple of times. This is like, okay, we're going to bring in a third person or I'm going to have a series of partners outside. That is that is a different level that people. Right. As, and, and I love you calling it varsity level because that's <laughs> language I use as well. Right. That, and I have to give credit to David Savage about it because that, that's that what he, he, he mentioned. And so so you bring it to that um, to that level. Uh, for some people, you know, when they first get married, especially if they get younger, that's kind of what I think of the archetype, especially in more conservative places, or people get married at early 20s, and the person that the sexual beings that they are 
at 20 are not as different being there at 40 or 50. And they may be more comfortable or for a variety of reasons, right? Multiple reasons people change interests and for reasons that we don't really understand. And for those, so I'm wondering at what point is that sacrifice too much or, you know, like mm-hmm. what, what's a deal breaker? You know, at what point do you, you know, are you good game and giving and so like, I'm sorry, I, I cannot give anymore because that just goes against everything that I am willing to do. You know, that, 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 too much part of social, yeah. uh, sexual communion, basically. Yeah. Right. So how do you it's do? A, I think it's a great question. And I think it, you know, it certainly varies by person and it requires that kind of level of self-examination and it requires you be in a place of acceptance of yourself and your sexual self. And where for you to be able to say, you know, monogamy is really important to me. And um, and whether it's because of my my religious values or whether it's because of my, you know, attachment or whether it's because of my fear. But that's not something I'm going to be able to work with. And that's a really hard conversation to have. But it's a really critical and important one, because unfortunately, I see a lot of couples where that conversation doesn't happen. And one partner goes along with it, but is resenting um and maybe judging and that that doesn't end well um unfortunately particularly for those young folk i mean we we don't teach people to have some of these hard conversations early on just before this i was in a supervision session with a with a uh, sex therapist i supervise in and she's in texas and we were talking about some Couples that that both of us have worked with um, where they're elderly in the 70s and 80s, the um, wives are these are hetero couples married many, many, many decades. And the wives due to age and health issues and, and, and changes in their body and stuff are just not interested in sex anymore. And the husbands are masturbating and watching pornography because they they still are. And the wives get really upset and that that the guy is mastered. And one of the questions I ask is, well, you know, when you guys got married, when you guys were dating, did you ever say, look, masturbation is a deal breaker for me? Was this a consensual agreement? Mm-hmm. We don't have those conversations. Mm-hmm. Got it. So, yeah. So let me see if I can dig more i want to see you mentioned pornography so that's another interesting let me take it that direction really it's a really heavy issue because it's rapidly evolving especially with the the advent of the internet we've become especially during the pandemic we've seen you know and then the new york times has had a couple of features about people who were you know nurses teachers and decided you know what i can make way more money way less stress um selling my my sexual being in line you know, like oftentimes you know with the help of a partner of a loving partner and they're doing it much to the chagrin of you know whatever board of education might be uh or uh and then there's this concept of ethical ethical pornography that can has is arising and the use of pornography so i'm wondering because you you actually wrote a book on this and it's called ethical porn for dicks which is <laughs> which is great again i mean we had to yeah and and it, I, it's I also got it. lots of pictures in it because it's a book for guys right sadly guys don't read and so to get them to read now i, I mean that book has kind of a funny story i mean i um i've been writing and talking about pornography issues for a long time it, it it is one of the canary in the coal mine kind of issues that you know around mm-hmm. sexuality in sex in our society and 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 the research around you know pornography um, indicates that you know uh, it's much more complex than people think and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that in general 
pornography has neutral to positive effects for most people. There are some people, however, that pornography is likely unhealthy for. And so mm-hmm. people that, you know, in, in your field, Leo, you know, people that are antisocial, people that have high levels of misogyny, people that, um, you know, have low levels of empathy for other people. If they watch violent pornography, men, um, it's about 5% of men uh, in Neil Malamuth's research, 5 to 7%. Um, if, if men with those characteristics watch violent pornography, they're at risk of increased um, uh, potential for sexual violent behavior. Um, the other group is really interesting is um, it's kind of a, a two-parter group. If you think watching pornography is bad, if you think pornography is immoral and you watch it anyway, you're likely to feel bad about yourself afterwards and Mm -hmm. shame and guilt over it. And so it's the moral conflict, um, moral incongruence that, you know, it's the same thing. And we see it in, in, in sex as well. If you think casual sex is immoral and slutty and then you have casual sex. Right. You're going to feel bad about it after. But people who think casual sex is fine and perfectly acceptable, when they have casual sex, they don't experience anxiety or depressive effects. So we need to examine those social values, our personal values around sex. And that that is, you know, one of my big messages. If you don't examine and look at your personal values around sex, whether you're a person or a therapist, for God's sake, you have to think mm. about it as a therapist to be able to talk to your patients about sex. The last group that can potentially be negatively impacted by pornography are people who think pornography is realistic. If you mm. watch pornography and you think it is a realistic depiction of sex, then you're you're more likely to experience negative effects. You, you know, you're more likely to think that anal sex is really easy. Just jump on. You don't right, need to prep. Right. You don't need lube. You don't, don't need consent. You don't need yeah. to talk. Unfortunately, it is, it, again, if you think about that, that second group, the moral incongruent people, it is the young people who get no sex education or get extremely limited abstinence only morally driven mm-hmm. sex education who are at the greatest risk of experiencing negative problems from, from pornography. But uh, so I've been, you know, I, I, talking about these issues for a while and, and I do an awful lot of media um, because I because I talk about this stuff and, right. and I guess I'm OK at talking about it. And so I, I was on Katie Couric's uh, show mm-hmm. about pornography and, you know, your listeners can watch this clip. It's on YouTube. It's incredibly painful. Um, <laughs> it is. And, and, and the conversation did not go well. Um, cause I kept mm. talking about research and I kept talking about the, what the research shows in, in contrast to, to, to Katie's very morally driven concerns about pornography. Uh. And, um, you know, and it was challenging. She did not want to hear about what the research showed. Right. But I realized after that, that as a clinician, you know, as a psychologist, I love talking about research. Right. Right. But when I'm talking with people around such a morally laden issue, when I'm talking with people that is so emotionally influenced, that has so much fear, I, I've i got to learn to talk with people like a real person and not a mm-hmm. psychologist. Um, and I've got to learn to normalize fear and mm-hmm. accept it and connect with it before offering the challenging research. So so that that book, Ethical Porn for Dicks, I rewrote it three times and <laughs> um, trying to make it more accessible 
mm-hmm. not talking about research, but as though I was talking with a guy over mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. and um, about what pornography is and isn't about the role of pornography in their life, inviting men, inviting people to think when you're not turned on about your sexuality how do you how do you feel about your sexual fantasies how do you feel about the pornography you are Mm -hmm. do you think it means anything about you what does it tell you about your sexuality i think these are really important questions that many people don't consider because we go through life particularly in sexuality with sexuality on autopilot so that was the point of that book and um you know, and it's done well. Um, uh, if your listeners um, want a hard copy of it, you, um, I, uh, I work with a group called Sexual Health Alliance, and they, uh, the book is out of print through the original publishers, but Sexual Health Alliance now has um, hard copies. Uh, That's great. Purchase. Awesome. Yeah. So we'll make sure to link that as well. Yeah. So we had uh, Josh Grubbs earlier in our in our oh, yeah. show, and Josh, uh, I, you actually saw you did a you did a, a CEU for the University of New Mexico on sex addiction, actually on the you know the myth of sex addiction, and wrote a book about the myth of sex addiction. So we had him earlier in the pandemic because he wrote an article regarding whether you know we're going to see this all of a sudden this sex addicted craze throughout the pandemic as we all deal with with the stress and, and of it. not so much multiple ways right and so yeah. josh um, is a josh is a, a collaborator of yeah. mine we published several papers together and have a couple more coming awesome That's so, he's great i we love to have him <laughs> yeah, it's fun yeah. so I, I as we were chatting right before we actually started recording um there is this seeming split perhaps between the the the, the, the literature that on re- the research on sex addiction, you know what it means, versus the clinical lore or perhaps the clinical understanding of the the compulsivity of sexual activity and especially pornography. And so maybe you can tease out a little bit more because uh, you already kind of outlined it a little bit for people for whom this this might yeah. be problematic. The idea of sex addiction. You mentioned at the extremes, the people who may have this incongruence, but also right. people who may have problems with this inhibition of behavior and antisocial traits, perhaps that for whom there might be a problem. Versus those who, for whom we might not. So maybe expand a little bit right. more about where, where you where you are in the uh, you know sex addiction as a concept. Yeah. So you know this is another um, area of, of 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 complexity. I mean, I in in my first book, Insatiable Wives, um, I uh, there was this one guy that I interviewed and talked about in the book who. He'd been married three times and divorced three times because he was just desperate to see his wife with other men and the wives weren't interested. Now, why was he marrying people that didn't match him sexually? Right. That 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 is an, an interesting point. But in the book, I I I, I just kind of casually mentioned it'd be really easy to diagnose this guy as a sex addict, but I don't believe in sex addiction. And that actually that that one flipping line ended up getting me on Dr. Phil. Um, Hmm. because he needed somebody that was going to, you know, kind of challenge claims of sex addiction. And, and I was, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, it's not real. It's not in the DSM. Remember the only training I got on sexuality was DSM. It ain't in there, Hmm. but I got so chat, I got so many challenges over that. People were like, well, of course, sex addiction is real. You know, there's this whole sex addiction industry. And I said, well, okay. And so I dove into it and I, I, I spent, again, 18 months or so reading and writing and interviewing and traveling and questioning, uh, could sex addiction be real? Is this a reasonable clinical concept? And 
I ended up arguing in the book that, in fact, I think that the the concept of sex addiction um, is a reflection of the intrusion of moral, heteronormative, monogamy-focused religious social values into clinical practice. Just the same thing that I experienced when I first encountered those couples. And um, and so I, you know I challenged the the industry and I challenged the the research supporting it um, and I and I, I challenged you know the degree to which this is you know a a rejection of many aspects of male sexuality and 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 also um, a, a very significant um, pathologization of homosexuality. Um, sex addiction was introduced mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s after um, the APA took uh, homosexuality out of the DSM, and the concept, the treatment in uh, sex addiction industry was introduced in 83 during the AIDS crisis when people mm-hmm. were terrified of sex and specific, specifically gay sex. Mm-hmm. And Fascinatingly, um, over the over the past few years, and Josh Grubbs has been a very significant player in this. Research has really now come out that supports an awful lot of the things that I suggest in that book. And and I I published that published the book in 2012. In 2013, the APA um, excluded sex addiction from DSM-5, and they excluded a, a concept called hypersexual disorder from DSM-5. Right. It, was, it was a similar kind of model without an addiction kind of framework. And the APA said, there's just not enough science here. And, and they said, there is too great a risk of you know, pathologizing normative sexuality. And so a few things that have really just developed, I mean, over the past few years, um, a study came out last week, for the love of God, that looked at this one um, component of the concept of sex addiction, where um, uh, for many years, sex addiction therapists have claimed that if you, on average, have an orgasm every day, that, you know, a a Kinsey TSO, total sexual outlet of seven plus, Mm -hmm. Kinsey measured it over a week. How many orgasms do you have over a week? Sex addiction therapists have argued that a TSO of seven plus is sign of addiction. Well, research came out just last week finding that uh, about 22 to 25 percent of men in a normative population have right. a TSO of over seven plus, and around 15 mm-hmm. percent of women do. So, mm-hmm. if we apply that criterion, whoa, we're we're pathologizing right. a quarter of men. Research has, has come out, Grubbs published some of this original research that belief in one's self-identification as a porn addict or a sex addict is right. predicted more by your religious history mm-hmm. than by your uh, consumption of pornography. And in fact, Sam Perry, who's at University of Oklahoma, um, finds that there are a great many men who watch pornography less than once a month, but still identify themselves as addicted to pornography. Um, so it's kind of a strange thing. Um, and again, you know, lots and lots of research um, being done, uh, finding that sex addiction is largely a United States phenomenon, not really mm-hmm. a significant is- clinical issue in other parts of the country. It is an issue that, uh, you know, 90, 95 percent of alleged sex addicts are men and half of those men are white religious, heterosexual mm-hmm. identified married men who make over one hundred thousand dollars a year. 
Mm. And so there's a significant issue of privilege here and mm. also an issue of men who get caught engaging in sexual behaviors that they right. sh- shouldn't have been doing. And then they claim sex addiction and go to sex addiction summer camp. ATSA, the uh, Association for Treatment of Sexual Abusers, um, during the Harvey Weinstein scandal, mm-hmm. um, when Harvey Weinstein claimed he was a sex addict and went to sex addiction treatment in, in Arizona. ATSA put out a statement saying, whoa, you know, wait a minute. Sex addiction is not an appropriate treatment or diagnosis for people who engage in criminal sexual behavior. And that actually is a a big concern for me because there are lots Mm -hmm. of typically wealthy men who use claims of sex addiction to avoid criminal responsibility for sexual abuse and particularly for possession of child pornography. Mm -hmm. Josh Duggar Mm -hmm. claimed to be a a porn addict and a sex addict when he got caught with child pornography. So we're seeing that a lot and, and it's troubling. The research around sex addiction treatment, um, and Grubbs may have talked about this, um, is that after 40 years of this model existing, there's no clinical scientific evidence that sex addiction treatment works. That's a really mm-hmm. significant thing in today's world of evidence-based practice. There are there are only two treatment models that are that do identify um, evidence for treatment of sex-related behavior problems and or pornography use, and it, they are acceptance and commitment therapy and cognitive mm. behavioral therapy. Mm. The interesting thing in both those models is that we don't try and focus on the behavior. We don't try and stop the behavior. Instead, we try to look at the thoughts and the meanings. We try and look at all of the things around it and connect it. Yana Vifradi is an Israeli researcher who found that the more orthodox religious a person was, the more they tried to stop themselves from thinking about masturbation. Mm -hmm. The more they tried to stop thinking about masturbation, the more they thought about it. The more they thought about it, the more shame, guilt, and distress they felt about it. So unfortunately, the sex addiction model, you know, is all is based on suppressing Mm -hmm. and stopping sexual behaviors Um, when what the research, you know, finds. And and, and, mm, at this point, I've been at this 10 years or so now, the sex people that identify as sex addicts or get labeled as sex addicts come out of a couple of different populations. One is people with religious conflict where they Mm -hmm. were taught that their religious desires should only be you know heteronormative and 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 vanilla kind of sex and mm-hmm. and now they have other desires that they were taught make them a bad person and they feel bad about it and the worse they feel about it the less self control they feel about it they don't actually have more sex than anybody else and in fact they oftentimes have much less sex than swingers or gay men for instance but they feel worse about it because of the moral conflict mm-hmm. those people deserve help but the moral conflict is the problem, not the sex. Mm-hmm. The The second group is people with other psychological issues. And 90% mm-hmm. of sex addicts in treatment have other major mental health issues, uh, anxiety mm-hmm. disorder, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, for instance. And the sexual behaviors are most oftentimes symptomatic of those, um, of those conditions, or they are um, desperate attempts to cope with those negative emotions. I, I saw a guy in Boston a couple of weeks ago who um, you know, was coming to me because he felt like he was addicted to watching transgender pornography. Mm. And uh, you know, within about four minutes of talking to this guy, I knew he had OCD. And, mm. and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. When you're watching pornography, is it kind of the only time that your brain turns off during the day. And he said, oh my God, yeah, right. When we're turned on, 
some of those anxiety ruminative mm. parts of our brain go quiet because our brain's focused on sexual arousal. And it. so it, so sexuality is a particular for men. Sexuality is a very intense coping strategy. Men use sex and masturbation as a coping strategy for negative emotions much more than women do. Um, the third group of, of, of men or people that, that, you know, are identified as sex addicts, um, are men that are in, um, uh, mismatched relationships where they want sex more than their partner or they want a different kind of sex than their partner does and that mismatch gets labeled as 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 addiction uh and then the last group is you know narcissistic men Mm. um who use uh claims of sex or pornography addiction to avoid responsibility for their behaviors the world health organization just adopted in ICD-11, a concept called compulsive sexual behavior disorder. Um, it is but, not diagnosable. Yeah, let me touch United on that. Yeah. Um, it took the United States 23 years to adopt ICD-10. So there is no, as far as, and I've checked, as far as I know, there is no current plan in the United States to adopt ICD-11. So we don't know when or if that diagnosis is going to be available in the United States. But, but even if it is, the diagnosis specifically excludes people who are experiencing distress because of a moral conflict, people who are experiencing sexual behavior problems because of emotional disorders, and people mm-hmm. who are identifying as, you know, struggling with their sexuality just because they got caught. If we exclude those three groups, we don't know if there's anybody left. There's mm-hmm. no research showing, in mm-hmm. fact, that high sex frequency leads to <laughs> sexual behavior problems. And in right. fact, as I said earlier, you know, uh, people have more sex, live longer. The rec- recommended number of org- male orgasms a month for prostate health is 23. Mm. You know, men's, mm-hmm. men's prostates are healthiest when they have 23 ejaculations a month. There you go. Doctor's orders, gentlemen. Doctor's orders. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I try and keep up the average for all of those other folks. My <laughs> Somebody point, has I to. think is immortal. Um, <laughs> but we, we have to recognize that because sex is so morally laden and because our field, I mean, my God, um, you know, up until the 1950s, we were doing lobotomies on women that mm-hmm. we diagnosed as nymphomaniac because they wanted sex about as much as men did. Mm-hmm. And we thought that was some, there was something wrong with that. Our field has got to come to terms with the degree of, of social moral bias that we allow into our clinical thinking because we hurt people. Mm-hmm. Conversion therapy, conversion therapy for 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 queer folk historically has used a sex addiction frame where they treated homosexuality as an addiction mm-hmm. and we right. hurt people. That's that's really that's really good. And I if I could summarize a little bit. So basically, you're saying that the variance basically for the occurrence of sex addiction is better accounted for by three mm-hmm. you know, sexual incongruence, which moralistic reasons, people who are narcissistic trying to avoid um consequences or another psychological mm-hmm. disorder or better accounts for the manifestation which is what we should be looking for when we're right. doing a diagnosis right it, sex, these sexual behavior problems are universally symptomatic of other issues mm-hmm. um, when i see people that are in trouble for pornography consumption it is symptomatic of other issue you know guys claim to be addicted to pornography and that's why they're watching child pornography no, sir. I'm sorry. If you're watching child pornography, mm. you are very much likely a, a person with pedophilia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got there because of the pedophilia, not because of watching too much porn. Let us mm-hmm. not let us not muddy the issue. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I um, 
because it's as you mentioned the internet and people uh, tying a little bit back to people who are not being educated about sexual education and i had a, a case relatively recently and it's it's a it's a brave new world but uh, i'm wondering about your thoughts regarding um and i don't think that data are they're simply not there but uh the inf- one of the attorneys wanted to know what the influence of watching porn as an adolescent would have had in this person's developing interest in child pornography. Now, the, the, the crux was that he started watching it once he was still an, a minor, an adolescent, and then continued as an adult. And I'm like, you know, and I tried to beef it up, but I'm like, I, I was just, I was diving into literature. There's precious little as to yeah. as to what we can say about, there might be a case that the person, as a child, it starts finding pornography that is of their same age-ish and then maintain that interest. And I, yeah, we don't I mean, have those data, so I don't know what you so think. There's some indications that, you know, um, adolescence is a period where we're developing our erotic script and we're identifying what are the things that we incorporate into our sexuality. However, it's driven by the things that turn us on, the things that we react to. And we right now actually don't know very well why people find one thing mm-hmm. sexually arousing and somebody else doesn't. Um, particularly with pedophilia, there is, you know, a, a I, I believe, a very significant building research literature um, around, you know, neurological and biological determinants of pedophilia. Right. Um, Crystal Mundy is a, uh, a researcher in Canada. She's on her internship right now, finishing her PhD. Um, and she has some some very good research looking at you know the development of pedophilia. And to to your point, Leo, she she describes that a lot of a lot of people, a lot of men with pedophilia, identify in adolescence that mm-hmm. they have these sexual attractions, and they find that their sexual attraction to people their age or younger isn't changing or progressing Mm -hmm. as it is in the peers. Most of us, as we age, we find people roughly our same, you know, kind of peer group sexually attractive and people with pedophilia, it sticks. So I would argue that um, and 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 to be honest, um, there is uh, I I believe that there is a great overemphasis on causality that is attributed mm-hmm. to pornography. People's pornography use is reflective of their desires and interests. It is rarely, if ever, causal. However, again, I will say. Pornography is entertainment. It's not sex education. We don't let people learn to drive by watching Fast and the Furious. We shouldn't be letting (laughs) kids learn about sex by watching pornography. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a great analogy. We we are engaging in gross criminal neglect of our of our children and adolescents by failing to provide sex education. Now, I will also point out in the Netherlands, they start mm-hmm. sex education around age six and seven mm-hmm. by, you know, with videos of, you know, what normal human right. nude bodies look like. Now they're not showing kids graphic sex, of course, mm-hmm. but, but they start sex education at an early age. And those societies that, that have access to public social nudity like mm-hmm. that, females have lower rates of body image disorders. Mm. They're um, in the Netherlands. They have lower rates of sexual assault, lower rates of teen pregnancy and lower rates of STI transmission. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our society, unfortunately, takes the approach that if we don't talk about it, it won't happen. Right. And clearly right. that doesn't work. Mm. No, not at all. I did want to you know, go back. So obviously yeah, yeah, talking here yeah. a lot about a lot about males. And one of the things that I think is really amazing and cool 
is that as society is becoming more accepting of, of sexual mm-hmm. diversity and acknowledging this, I'm now seeing and hearing a lot more women yeah. being comfortable talking about their sexual needs and interests. Um, my first book, you know, about um, women engaged in you know, permissive infidelity. When I wrote the book, and that was 2008, 2009, um, that was a lifestyle that was overwhelmingly introduced by the husband. The husband mm-hmm. went to the wife and said, would you, would you be interested in this? But now with the release of, of that book and on audiobook, I'm now hearing from all these women mm-hmm. who are going to their partners and saying, hey, I'm into this. And it mm-hmm. is only because women are now being empowered mm-hmm. to express their sexuality that we're now that we're now sort of hearing these things and i i just think it's amazing um i think it's i think it's an incredible thing to watch and i think it's also we're le- you know we're, we're learning ways in which you know female and male sexuality are different i uh i don't know, I don't know if you remember tumblr you know and and yes. tumblr used to have lots of pornography and it was um, uh, GIFs, these short looping videos. And what was really interesting was when Tumblr took away pornography, it had a disproportionate impact on females because females want mm. GIF porn much more than men do. And mm. it's really interesting when you when you examine why. First, women experience sexual boredom um, less than men do. Women um, have less of a sexual response to novelty than men do. But when I talk to women about this, they say something really interesting. Mm -hmm. They say, I can find a looping video, a GIF that I find arousing, and I don't have to worry about something happening in the pornography that's going to turn me off. Got I don't it. have to worry about some hairy, unattractive person. I don't like Got showing it. up. I don't have to worry about somebody engaging in violent behavior that turns mm. me off. Right. Mm. Because I know what's in the video. I know it's in the looping video and I can watch it and be safe in my sexual arousal. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that women experience disruption in sexual arousal much more than men do. When men are turned on, it takes more to kind of turn them off mm-hmm. um, than women. And and it's really interesting now that we're seeing women find ways technologically to adapt and accommodate those aspects of their sexuality. And I just love that we're in this place now where there's re- and, and everything I just said is based in research, mm-hmm. um, but also based now in people, um, you know, being able to talk about it. Women watch, you know, many women watch gay male porn mm-hmm. and women say that, well, one of the reasons is because I don't have to worry about the woman in the pornography being taken advantage mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's and that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um have you have you read a book? It's uh, a billion wicked thoughts uh, by yeah, Yogas and Sagadam. Yeah, yeah. I, I I like it. Um, and you know, and their colleagues we've corresponded a bit. Um, uh, I talked about some of their their book and some of my research. Um, uh, the the one interesting caveat that that I challenge they they propose um it, to explain the popularity of men heterosexual men watching transgender pornography mm. they pose an interesting um, hypothesis uh, that they call kind of an erotical illusion. They, they say that mm. men, are, men are evolutionarily programmed to find female face and breast sexually arousing 
and to experience arousal at sperm competition to the presence of a penis. Right, sperm competition and theory. So that those two things kind of combine in men to create sexual arousal. I would say that it's an interesting theory. There's no research behind it. It hasn't been tested. And clinically, I would challenge it because mm-hmm. um, I, I work with lots of men who, who are confused by watching transgender pornography. And um, in general, I think that those men are exploring aspects of their sexual identity. And, mm-hmm. um, you, know, you know, Dan Savage points out gay men don't watch trans porn. Um, mm-hmm. But straight men who are interested in penises and bisexual men who haven't accepted their bisexuality watch transgender porn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the, the reason I brought up uh, Billion Wicked Thoughts is because you mentioned the female women's interest in male and uh, on male pornography. And one of the arguments when I, one of the comments that they made, and I think of the book, but also when I talk to, uh, to friends about it, what they say is that, well, it's because usually the aesthetic, you know, the, the straight porn has male appetites or ideas or what they want in mind contrary to male porn that is kind of catering to kind of having two males and there's something about kind of like for straight men who like two women mm-hmm. it's kind of does the same thing so i'm like that that click that kind of makes sense to me that you are essentially presenting two really good looking guys having a good time and as you said you know they don't even have to worry about um scenes of abuse or anything like that not that Consensually, yeah. and that's everything you know, so you can also get as long as there's also consensually, you know, there is SNM porn produced by feminist producers. Right. And so yeah, that's, ethical, ethical porn is a thing. I talk about it in my in my book, yeah. obviously. Um, but there's a lot of misunderstandings of the porn industry. The you know, the the porn industry is not this monolithic kind of thing run by mm-hmm. organized crime that is kidnapping people off the street and making them make porn overwhelmingly in the United States, at least most porn producers are females who are producing their own content and trading it with other people to be on their websites that, that, and, and there are, there are inappropriate and unhealthy aspects um, to some porn production, but you can find pornography that is ethically produced, you know, that is, that is like fair trade coffee. Right. Um, And, and so I encourage folks if, if it, I see, you know, I see couples and, and and the wife says, well, you know, he's watching pornography and 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 all the women in pornography are being abused and taken advantage of. And so he's he's taking advantage of that. And that's unethical. And that turns me off. And I say to them, well, what if we could help him find pornography where the women weren't being abused and where they were consenting and it was it was pleasure based? Would it be OK for him then? And oftentimes the wife is like, well, no. Because they are reacting emotionally from a place of kind of fear mm. and concern and insecurity. I get it. That's valid. But we need to be thoughtful about acknowledging when our our our, our views are driven by emotions mm. and we hide it behind what seems to be a rational kind of thought. Got it. Kind of if, like a harm, like is this harmful to somebody else? But in reality, it's more about your own yeah, emotional right. reaction to it. I see. Yeah, and, uh, which I think is kind of what drives a lot of the pornography debate here in the U.S. At least, right. which is like you know, oh, it's harming. I was like, well, the evidence doesn't seem to show that, but it's more of a moralistic reaction yeah. to it rather than emotion, more morally based emotion. Yeah. And, rather and, than fact, and yeah. we have to be more sophisticated in our research around pornography. Most most research around pornography and most arguments around pornography don't acknowledge the issue of masturbation. Mm. That masturbation accompanies pornography is roughly 90 to 95%. Right. And 
but when we talk about the impact of pornography, are we talking about impact of pornography or impact of masturbation to pornography? It's, it's an interesting issue. Most couples don't ever talk about masturbation, just like you know the, the couples I mentioned a moment ago. Um, and uh, you know Sam Perry, Oklahoma researcher I mentioned a moment ago, his dissertation um, uh, when he published it found that. Uh, Pornography use increased risk of divorce in couples and mm. the media went wild because the media loves this kind of sensational right. fear based anxiety producing kind of crap. Well, I was one of the folks that said, well, you got questions here. And uh, in that research, you know, uh, they didn't look at masturbation. And to his credit, though, Sam is a, a really responsible scientist, and he listened to people like me mm -hmm. and Josh and others who were raising some concerns. Sam went back later and reanalyzed his data, and he did have masturbation data, and he looked mm. at it, and he found that when you when you factor out masturbation, watching pornography had a neutral to positive impact on on relationships and marriages. Mm. It did not predict divorce. Frequency of masturbation, interestingly, did. Mm. But it's not that masturbation is bad for your marriage. It is that masturbation predicts or is symptomatic of sexual dissatisfaction within the marriage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, got it. And, you know, so men and Regnerus in, in Austin has, has looked at this and demonstrated it pretty well that men masturbate more when sex frequency goes down in the marriage, that men use masturbation to compensate for, right. for unmet sexual needs. Where mm -hmm. we started, Katie, mm -hmm. um, women more often use masturbation to complement sexuality. So um, within marriages, mm -hmm. when, when, when they're having more sex, women are more likely to masturbate. But masturbation within marriage and sex fantasy, use of pornography is typically, typically an indication to me as a clinician that there is some undiscussed mismatch mm. in this couple. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about it. Mm. Okay, that's great, and I, I, I like that you kind of just brought it full circle because that's kind of perfect as we as we're going through the edge. It's funny, I, well, as, as a yeah. as a therapist, I mean, I I've always argued that therapy sessions are a circle. We start talking in, about one thing, we end up on other stuff, and we end up back now <laughs> yeah. at the beginning. Couldn't have way to go. better. Yeah. We, should, we should get some degrees in psychology or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for this discussion today. We really enjoyed you sharing your expertise and, and talking with you. Where can people find you and kind of follow what you're up to? Yeah, silly enough, but Twitter is one of the big ways, um, at Dr. David Lave. Now, my name sounds like Get Laid. It's actually spelled <laughs> L-E-Y. It's Spanish for law. Um, Leo, mm -hmm. my, my, my dad That's and right. I have always joked about, you know, running for sheriff under the under the. <laughs> But on Twitter at Dr. David Lay, um, and then I've got a website, davidlayphd.com. Um, you can find me there, find out what I'm doing, what I'm working on. My next project, if I can make it happen, yeah. is I'd like to write a book about sexual misconduct. I'd like to write oh. a book about particularly professional sexual misconduct, the teachers, the lawyers, oh, the therapists, the yeah. doctors, the police officers that have sex with people they're not supposed to. Because in my experience, these people are making these poor decisions out of very human reasons. And I'd like to write 
their stories to help people understand the human issues that lead us to make these mistakes because that's how we prevent them in the future rather than treating these people as monsters yeah that's a, well we'll definitely have to have you on for that one because i definitely i teach that in my correctional psychology class we talk about you know the when those situations occur in prison so that sounds that sounds like a really interesting project any other final Issues, anything that we didn't cover, you know, as, as they say in the biz, anything else that, you yeah. know, that <laughs> well, we forgot to ask? <laughs> you know, particularly for your audience, I, um, I, I can't say enough that I encourage um, psychology students to demand that psychology programs effectively address issues of sexuality in the training of psychologists, um, that to do to do anything less is gross neglect. Um, and I encourage all of my, you know, licensed colleagues to look within yourself and how comfortable are you talking about sexuality with your patients? And if you're not, it's okay. You're not the only one, Mm. but now there are, um, amazing opportunities out there to get better training on these issues. Um, I do a lot of it myself. Um, the sexual health Alliance is a group that I highly recommend. I'm on their advisory board. Um, and they're out there training people to be sex therapists or just to be sex informed about the real world of sex so that you can support your patients without judgment. Because unfortunately, what many of our patients are telling us and what most, much of the research is telling us is that therapists and psychologists who are not trained in sexuality inadvertently shame their patients when the patients share their information about sexuality. Mm-hmm. We're not supposed to shame our patients. Let us grow beyond that. Mm. that's great i love that that's a beautiful ending katie do you have anything else no i think that's i I think that's great um thanks again and we will link to all of your information and the things that you mentioned and just thank you so much for your yeah we can't thank you enough we appreciate you my pleasure happy to know you guys thank you